Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, where we are talking about a town that is fondly known as Britain's oldest town, Britain's first town. And this is Colchester. Now, Colchester has some extraordinary ancient history. We've got archaeology from the Bronze Age. We've got remains from the Iron Age, especially the late Iron Age. You have the ditches, the earthworks, what remains of what were once monumental dike systems. You have the remains of Boudicca's destruction of this town in 60 AD. And to talk through Colchester's ancient history, I was delighted to head up to that town a few weeks back and to interview Frank Hargrave. Frank is the head manager, he is the head honcho at the Colchester and Ipswich Museum. He knows a lot about the archaeology, especially the ancient archaeology, discovered in that part of the island. And he is also an expert in particular on late Iron Age ritual and religion. So without further ado, here's Frank to talk all about Britain's first town. Frank, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Wonderful for me, thank you. I mean, it's lovely to be here and actually talking to you in person after such a long, long period of Zoom interviews. And we are talking about this incredible topic, ancient Colchester. And Frank, can we say that this is the oldest town in Britain? Yes, absolutely, of course we can. People tend to focus a little bit too much, I think, on a reference that was made by Pliny the Elder in around about AD 77, I think. And that actually refers to Camelodunum, to Roman Colchester, as a town. And that's the first reference to a town, or so we thought. But interesting, the same reference also puts it in context of, he's actually referring to Anglesey, he's talking about Anglesey, and he's putting Colchester in context so people know where Anglesey is. And that tells us something else, of course, that tells us that people know where Colchester is in the first place. So that's interesting, it shows it's you know, potentially an important place. But subsequently, London, as if they haven't got enough to boast about, are now claiming that London is the first place to be mentioned in a Roman kind of reference. And something was found in the Bloomsbury site, a tablet where you can see where it's been scratched on in the back, a letter mentioning London, perhaps 10 years before that, so in the AD 60s. But in many ways, you can get focused a little bit too much on that, I think. It's all really quite immaterial when you look at two things, I think, for Roman Colchester. And that's, there was something here before that was really quite substantial. And that's really important. If there's any place in Britain that can claim kind of pre-Roman urbanisation, it's Colchester. 
on the continent at this kind of point. They were really well-established opera, as they're called, which is, I think, a bit of a snobbish term, opera. It's kind of saying, well, these Celts or Irish people or whatever, they weren't really capable of proper towns. But that's kind of what we're looking at. In Britain, we just don't get that to that extent. I don't think there is any such thing. I think academics are kind of in agreement now. We don't really get proper urbanisation in Britain until the Romans arrive. With the one possible, in my mind, I think, potential for urbanisation is Colchester. And you can really see that. If you just walk around the town, you always walk into something, don't you? There's a big dike system that still survives to such a ridiculous degree. And you know, it's amazing that more people don't know about it, actually, because you really get a sense of it. And bear in mind the ditches and the ramparts you know, aren't, aren't anywhere near what they used to be. They're still really impressive, all wooded now, of course. But they extend for miles, and you just get that sense of scale here. And that was 50 years or so before the Romans, so not that long, actually, that's a, that's a lie. But certainly, it predates the London claim, anyway. It is so incredible how you have this archaeology that you can still go and see today in and around Colchester. That stretches from the Iron Age up until the AD millenniums. But Frank, you mentioned before the Romans, something here before the Romans, so let's focus in on that first. What time periods are we talking about for the earliest archaeology that we've discovered in this area? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a good point, actually, because you can get a bit carried away about talking about pre-Roman urbanisation, pre-Roman activity in a site like Colchester, because we are talking about a short period of time. That's very true for Britain generally in terms of things like religious practices and, and perhaps trade and, and other kind of activity. A lot seems to happen in the kind of decades just before, let's say, Caesar's invasion of Britain and up until the conquest itself. It's almost like the Romans, their presence on the continent was catalyzing a lot of activity in Britain at that time, both for the better perhaps, but also for the worse as well in terms of kind of intertribal warfare and things like that. But certainly we have evidence in Colchester of activity around a place called Sheepen, which seems to be the centre actually for kind of economy of trade and manufacture, possibly as early as the Bronze Age, but you probably wouldn't look at it like that. Certainly at the late Iron Age, you know, where there's evidence of coin manufacture and things like that at Sheepen. And that's about half a mile outside of the modern town now. And in the Roman period, it carries on as a kind of site of manufacture and trade and, and that kind of activity. Because, Frank, you and your team, you do have some remarkable archaeology dating to the Bronze Age in the Colchester Museum. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the most obvious one is, of course, the Sheep and Cauldron. And you're right, it comes from that area. And that's why it's an interesting link that happens to be found there. Because Sheepen is very close to the river, so there is that potential contact there. River, both in the Bronze Age and in the Iron Age, rivers generally and, and all kind of watery areas had a ritual link but also, of course, a practical one as well in terms of transport and different things. But the cauldron is wonderful. I mean, you do get a fair few of them in Ireland. They're much more common, interestingly. But in Britain, you get them from the Middle Bronze Age, I'd say, Late Bronze Age, and a few in the Iron Age too, but they seem to drop off in use in the Iron Age. But the use is very similar to the kind of activity you'd see right the way through that period of, you know, two, three thousand years. It was an excuse for people to gather for these great feasts, and the cauldrons really kind of represent that. You can imagine them boiling, would you believe, large quantities of meat perhaps, but potentially also for storing mead and different things and sharing that out. And so they're real focus points within these kind of feasts that would have been perhaps, you know, two, three, four times a year associated with kind of events in the agricultural calendar, most probably. And this example at Colchester Castle is a really good one, you know. Interestingly, not as thick, if you look at the shell of it, it's thinner than you might imagine, but it's a big old object, isn't it? 
Absolutely, no, it's an incredible object. And going on a slight tangent here, because obviously at that time we now know from the archaeology and even recent discoveries, for instance, up in Scotland in Kilmartin Glen, this idea of around this time of there being lots of connectivity, for instance, between Brittany, between Southwest England, you mentioned Ireland, between Ireland, and also possibly all the way up to Kilmartin Glen in modern day Scotland. Do you think this could possibly emphasize with, let's say, this cauldron in Colchester? Maybe we don't have the archaeology surviving to really understand this right now, but there was perhaps these links, these connections between all of these places at that time. Oh, undoubtedly. And when those links get broken, I think we always underestimate in archaeology just how strong those links were, how far people were traveling, how much people were talking to each other, how much they were trading, and the knowledge they had of other peoples and other kind of areas because of those links. I think we hugely underestimate that in archaeology, just starting to become aware of that now. But also, I think the Bronze Age for me is really, certainly the late Bronze Age going into the early Iron Age, you can see how dramatically it turns the world upside down when those links get broken up. We have a small Bronze Age hoard at the castle, a couple within the collection actually, but they're a ten a penny, aren't they, Bronze Age hoards? You know, these beautiful objects buried in their thousands, these axe heads and polstaves and, you know, all sorts of beautiful bronze objects poured into the earth. And, you know, archaeologists say, oh, you know, perhaps it's ritual, you know, or perhaps it's all sorts of things. But it all happens within the space of a couple of hundred years, which isn't a long period of time, really. And, and to such a huge degree, something's clearly going on. And, you know, there's a number of really interesting ideas now, theories about the giant volcanic explosion in the uh, Aegean, which upset the whole of that area, the Minoans, of course, and, and spread across Europe and eventually broke up all the kind of links between mainland Europe and Britain and really turned the world upside down in this country as well. And, you know, this hoard at the castle is, is emblematic of that, I think. And then the Iron Age follows suit. You start getting, right at the end of the Bronze Age, early Iron Age, you start getting these hill forts being kind of constructed right up to the you know, middle Iron Age. And, you know, you've got to say, well, people are looking to their defences, aren't they? It's breaking up, again, that trade and, and creating a more kind of chaotic world. And so, again, it's interesting when you come back to Colchester, after those hill forts kind of fall away in use, why in Colchester you suddenly get these vast, vast dike systems being built up around, you know, these great defences being built up around a town like Colchester. And, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll come on to it shortly, but why also you get conversations around yeah, changes of power and things like that over the tribes that were controlling Colchester. Well, you mentioned tribes there, and obviously let's go on to the Iron Age now. And as you've hinted at already during our chat, it sounds like this really is the period where ancient Colchester, I don't know if we can call it Camludinum yet, really becomes this central place for the local people. Yeah, that's an interesting one, because I think it all follows as part of the intertribal kind of relationships of the time. I guess the way that you'd see it as a place for local people to gather is, is actually quite a difficult one to answer. I mean, archaeologists will go on at length about whether we should be calling them tribes at all. Probably shouldn't be, certainly shouldn't be referring to them as kingdoms or anything like that. But it's, I mean, just the idea of tribes in Britain is a very complicated one. If you look at, for instance, Brigantes in the far north, it's all broken up in terms of confederation of tribes, really. But again, and other places, Koratavi, for instance, around kind of Leicestershire kind of area, we know of coins of kings ruling at the same time, which suggests there was actually you know, different tribal groups or whatever under this great big badge. And of course, all of these names come to us through the Romans. And for this area, you've got the Catavalorni and the Trinovantes. And we cannot be clear. It's a really complicated picture of who's controlling the area at any one point 
And there's even theories that actually Colchester was being was like a kind of satellite site for the Council of Law and I within Trinovantes territory. Or perhaps there was a big alliance. You know, we can't be sure. Although my feeling is the Council of Law and I kind of came in quite violently, actually, possibly in response to that catalyzing effect of the Romans, when people were really looking for slaves, really, acquiring slaves, and it is fueling intertribal warfare for the tribes to gain slaves to then send to Rome or to the continent or, you know, all of the trappings and the goods and different things and that flowed back then to this area. And I don't think it's a coincidence, of course, that we get all these wonderful objects that you can see in the Castle Museum in the graves of this area, all from the continent, of course, Amphora, the wonderful Augustus medallion, all of these, you know, beautiful objects and very rich graves suddenly appearing in this area, as I say, you know, 20, 30 years before the invasion. And that can't be a coincidence. So I think, as I say, it's all part of that conflict, part of that, the relationships between the tribes. Well, let's delve into late Iron Age Colchester now and many of these exhibits which you say are currently at the Colchester Museum. I know you personally have done a lot of work in the past on religion and ritual at this time. And let's focus on that topic first, because we do have a lot of artefacts from the late Iron Age in the Colchester Museum that seem to shed more light on ritual and religion at that time. Or do we? Um, <laughs> I'd say, I mean, it's an interesting one for us. The big site in Colchester is actually uh, Gosbeck, so we call it rather optimistically perhaps an archaeological park now but of course not much survives and that's very true for generally for ritual and religion in the Iron Age. As I said I mentioned earlier that that you know the world was turned upside down really at the beginning of the Iron Age and that's very much the case for ritual and religion as well everything that was kind of well known in the Bronze Age gets broken up and you get new practices emerging all over the country right up to the very late Iron Age when it looks like things might start being a bit more established. And there's an insinuation of that at Gosbeck's, largely because when the Romans arrived, they certainly seemed to respect the centre as an indigenous place of potential worship, certainly of gathering. And they installed this vast theatre, one of the biggest in Britain, connected to a very large temple complex and some baths there as well. And that's a model that you do see on the continent, but nowhere else in Britain. And that's interesting. Again, it shows those Roman ambitions as, as to kind of taking something of the continent and thinking it will work in Britain and then possibly finding it doesn't. But it probably came after something else. And again, the dike system kind of, it's on the confluence, if you like, of the, of the dike system. So it's almost like it's being protected. But there's not much evidence there from the Iron Age. And that's the problem. It might have been wiped clean, of course, when the Romans arrived and put all of these great big things on top. You want to see more, really, to really know what's going on. And there are a couple of tantalising objects. The, Gos uh, the Mercury statue, of course, a tiny little ring of Mars. And, of course, in the Iron Age name is, comes after the god of war, uh, Camelos. So, you know, is there a link there? So there's these tantalising kind of hints. And under the temple complex itself, you know, there was something very big there from the Iron Age. But again, the Iron Age ritual sites, they weren't well developed, weren't built up. They didn't have big temples and things like that. They were more open air sites. So it's just tantalizing, but you just don't know what's going on there. But that's great too, because of course, you know, you create all sorts of theories and stories and, and it has, it's one of those places of great myth, I think. And actually the site, supposedly of course, where Claudius came to accept the surrender of the tribes of Britain. Based, I have to say, on very little. I don't know quite where that comes from. But as I say, it's that kind of site that attracts those kind of myths. 
Well, forgive my ignorance. It's always very difficult to say stuff with certainty, especially when you go back to ancient history, especially when you're talking about archaeology. So ritual and religion, we have these tantalizing pieces of evidence that might give us more information about it. But can we say with more confidence that in regards to burial, archaeology around this area, it is telling us more about the burial objects and how people were buried at that time. Absolutely. And again, you know, there seems to be a great disruption to burial in Iron Age Britain. Strange things again seem to be happening to the point there's for a long time a complete absence of burials in the country. People just couldn't find them. So they were kind of saying, well, were people being what were called sky burials? And still happens in, well, Tibet, very occasionally you have these sky burials. Or were they being put into rivers? They just couldn't find them. But actually, we are starting to find those burials now, certainly again in the, in the late Iron Age, but nowhere really to the extent that you find them around Colchester and Hertfordshire and this kind of area, where, which seems to be the kind of heartland, if you like, of the Cantablorni tribe in particular, who, as I said before, I think were starting to become very wealthy, possibly off the back of you know, trade with the continent, but also potentially intertribal conflict as well, under you know, who appears to be a very influential leader, Knoblin as well, of course, worth mentioning. And the richness of the graves of Stanway and Lexton in Colchester really are quite extraordinary. I mean, taking the Lexton burial, which is probably the most famous, of course, you know, these amphora, many amphora from the continent, presumably carrying wine or, or olives, but I think more was definitely wine, knowing the love of alcohol that the, <laughs> the Iron Age people seem to have. But also a folding stall seemed to have been in there, which is uh, emblematic, potentially, of, of um, Roman generals used to carry them on the, you know, with the battlefield. So again, possibly a diplomatic gift of some kind. This wonderful griffin head, beautifully carved, a boars, again, boar figurines, which are quite common, again, on the continent, but also to a certain extent in Britain. Chainmail, which is quite rare in Britain, and you seem to imagine these kind of warriors, many of whom would have had chain mail and helmets and all the things, but that doesn't appear in the archaeological records very often in Britain at all. And actually that symbol, if you like, of the warriors with no clothes on charging into battle, there might actually be a bit of truth to that, to be honest. There doesn't seem to be an awful lot of evidence um, other than kind of shields and different things. So incredibly rich burials in this particular kind of area, as I say. I mean, I must admit, one of the artifacts at the museum which I love the most are, and you mentioned them in passing just now, are those animal figurines from the Lexton burial because when you have a look at those in the case they're just so stunning, they are beautiful to look at. Yeah and, and, and you know with a lot of these things it's quite hard to know what they would have represented to the Iron Age peoples if you like and again it goes back to your point earlier about that kind of contact with the continent, how much they were talking to people and how much they kind of recognised foreign symbols if you like, for instance I mean the griffin Particularly, that probably, you know, there was no indigenous kind of idea of that. But we, again, we don't know an awful lot about their iconography, for instance. It was almost definitely in wood. There's very little surviving in stone or anything like that. So again, we don't really know what symbols they look to. You start getting coins in Britain from about 50 BC. And again, the Knoblin coins are everywhere where you get coins in Britain. Again, influential. It's a sign of his influence, really. And Iron Age coins are beautiful. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to really kind of look, but really, really quite stunning. And there's deliberate selection of images there. And the first ones, of course, travel all the way from Greece, from about 300 BC, travelling across Europe before they get to Britain and becoming more and more stylized as they do. So it's not straight from Rome necessarily, although later issues are kind of copies of Roman images. And that's presumably because people in the Iron Age were actually going, oh, yes, we like that, that means something to us, we'll copy that one, but not others. And, and you, you see images that you'd expect them to use, they don't. We're not quite sure, again, why they picked up some imagery and not others. 
No, absolutely. I love that coinage and the possible links between Colchester at that time and the Hellenistic world in the East in the aftermath of Alexander the Great's death. So that is astonishing and I love that link in particular. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. focus then on these connections with the continent at this time because when do we start seeing in the archaeological record in the late iron age you mentioned that's roughly like 50 years before caesar that we do start seeing all these objects starting to emerge in the archaeological record in colchester roman objects i think specific to colchester i possibly wouldn't go back that far i think really colchester's influence starts to rise with tasciovanus probably after Caesar, that is. So really starting from about 20 BC, do you really get to see Colchester really becoming very significant and being different, as I say, to the other places that are potentially starting to become urbanised, which is very early stages everywhere else. So yeah, I'd say not quite until that period, really. So what sorts of objects do we start seeing? The big one is amphora, of course, and presumably wine. That seems to be something adopted very quickly in this area by elites. 
And that all goes back to, like the sheep and cauldron, really. It's the opportunity for warlords, for the archetypal big man, you know, to gather people, to feed them, to give them alcohol, and to have those big feasts. That was the opportunity for people looking for marriages, people looking to build alliances, all sorts of things. And you can imagine that, you know, I mentioned about urbanisation in an area like this, but even Colchester was, to be fair, a really very dispersed settlement. And that's Britain at this point, you know, people living in a very rural area and, and people having to travel quite a long way, but they did. And those feasts were really important for that. People would travel to have these great feasts, usually associated with the agricultural calendar, as I say. But equally, at the time of the Roman conquest, you start to see you know, something a bit different happening. And, and as I say, in terms of the ritual context, this is the point when you start getting some you know, huge coin hoards starting to appear. And that's, again, probably associated with people gathering in a time of fears, exaggerating religious beliefs. And, you know, in, in Colchester, a place called Mark's Tay, we get some coin hoards in the area. Interestingly, but not at Gosbeck's and not in the centre of Colchester. Perhaps that's why you know, the Romans were finding that and picking it up, or who knows. But it's interesting, it seems to be more on the periphery and in kind of more rural areas just outside of settlements and things like that, that you tend to get those kind of ritual deposits, usually associated with kind of hillsides and watery areas and things like that again. And just quickly, so we can focus on one particular object just before we move on to the Roman invasions and Roman cultures. And you mentioned it earlier, the Augustus medallion. Just describe a bit more what this object is, because it is absolutely stunning. Yeah, again, I mean, this is emblematic, I think, of the Lexington burial. It's actually from a coin of Augustus, and it was buried with this person in about AD 15. And it's emblematic of the whole burial and what was happening with the politics of the time, I think. So it's not a huge object, and it has been kind of put into place in this medallion. But what it would have meant to the people in terms of the diplomacy, potentially, with the continent is really quite significant. You know, there's actually links with Britons even actually being in Rome at this time and the exchange of hostages, for example, which in the Roman world, as you know, you've said many times on the ancients, is very different to our idea of a hostage. You know, these were people who would have been brought up as Romans and then they kind of come back to the society as, you know, almost plants of the Romans having become Romanized in many ways. And that probably was happening in Britain before the conquest, almost definitely. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And in that regard, we keep on that hostages idea now because we do also see these infamous artefacts, also slave chains dating to this time in Colchester. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's obviously a very sad symbol. Slavery in Britain was here you know, long before the Romans, but I think we suspect that the presence of the Roman Empire on the doorstep, if you like, accelerated the process an awful lot. And we see that sadly reflected in kind of much later colonial examples where societies, unfortunately, are completely bowled over by the presence of an empire, if you like, driven by slavery. And the Roman Empire absolutely was. I mean, the number of slaves that would go through the system was, was just insane, just awful, awful numbers. And to fuel that, obviously, the slaves had to come from somewhere and constantly. And, you know, there would have been, sadly, people in this country seeing that as an opportunity. And that would have itself, as well as you know, generating those numbers, that would have fueled intertribal warfare undoubtedly. And those slave chains there in the museum are emblematic of that. So you've highlighted already how Colchester, at the time of the Claudian invasion, AD 43, it was a very important centre for the Britons in the city. It's where around here, maybe not in Gosbex, but it's around here that Claudius accepts the surrenders of the British chiefs. And after that, Frank, 
We see Colchester, Iron Age Colchester, it transforms when it becomes a Roman version of Colchester. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's easy to get carried away with how, how amazing the archaeology of Iron Age Colchester is, and it is. But as I said before, it's a relatively short period of time as it's starting to look like an urban centre to some degree. And of course, when the Romans arrive, it's very different again. They arrive, they build a Roman fortress, fast by any stand, certainly of the day, you can imagine suddenly, you know, a centre that can hold 5,000 soldiers and cavalry and all sorts, you know, just being built with great fortifications very, very quickly by Iron Age standards, you know, people would be looking in just astonishment and you can imagine all the logistics of that. And, you know, relatively quickly, I think the area becomes pacified, probably again through diplomacy and different things rather than outright warfare necessarily. Interestingly, it seems like Knoblin's son, Caraticus, is one of the main rebels actually, interestingly. But anyway, so obviously there was a breakdown in relationships somewhere. But then the fortress is kind of demilitarized and turns into the homes really of the ex-soldiers. It becomes a colonia, which is a very high status city. In effect, and again, that's one of the reasons why we can claim Colchester being one of the first towns in the country because of that influence. And then the Roman view on it, you can see their ambition straight away when they start building a vast temple. And that's, of course, what the castle's built on. And those foundations still survive. You can go into the vaults, if you like, which were the foundation of a vast, vast temple. And when you go down there, you just get a sense of that sheer scale. And that's huge for someone to have that ambition. When you imagine everything else that the people of this area would have seen, this huge classical temple, and that's important too, of course, because you know, it's interesting how quickly people were building kind of Romano-British temples, which are very different. They're very small kind of temples, sometimes in a wider complex, but still quite small with most of the activity happening outside. This classical temple, much, much bigger with, with this huge centre, huge building and colonnaded kind of complex, bits of which are found in the buildings kind of opposite, if you like, whenever you scratch the surface. And that's the beauty of Colchester, of course. Scratch the surface and you see these wonderful things underneath. And that vast scale is, is emblematic of that, really. And elsewhere you go in Colchester, I mentioned the theatre and, and the, bath, the baths. You know, that was the case also in the centre as well. There was another theatre built in Colchester, a very substantial one. And bear in mind, there's only five theatres ever found in Britain. Two of them are here, and two of the largest are here. And some of that still survives again. You, you can kind of look through the window of one of the buildings along the road next to the castle, and you can see some of the theatre remains there. And, of course, the Roman Circus, the only Roman Circus ever found in Britain. And that can see 8,000 people. And again, you know, we talk 8,000 people doesn't sound, to modern ears, a huge number of people. But again, in the classical world, that's vast, you know, particularly for Britain with a population potentially at this time, somewhere between a million and two million people. 8,000 people in one place in the southeast is vast. It is, absolutely. And when you mean circus in ancient history, is it different to what we mean circus today? Or what do you mean by circus? Oh, yes, of course, yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking Ben-Hur, you know. We're, <laughs> we're talking yeah, you know, a racetrack for chariots to you know, race around. And again, we don't know too much about the story, I would say, in Colchester in terms of written records and things like that. But when you look at, for instance, Constantinople a few centuries later, yeah, there's all sorts. Of, there's the blues and the reds, I think. Also, greens and the blue. I forget. But, you know, the whole riots. The Nika riots. Uh, the I'm thinking, yeah, particularly, you know, were caused by this. They became almost like tribes, didn't they, of supporters. So you can see how impassioned people could become with racing in that case, but also how important this kind of entertainment was in, in terms of the theatres. And the Gosbecks, you know, the theatre and the temple complex is important in terms of the religious aspects there as well, because the theatre would have had a role with the imperial cult, for instance. 
Absolutely. I think there's another case of Pompeii, isn't there, like in the first century, where you have these two teams, and it comes to blows at the end, once again emphasising your point of how important entertainment buildings were. So you mentioned that incredible monumental building, the Temple of Claudius. But Frank, that temple doesn't stay standing for very long, does it? No, and I think you know, every child will see at some point that wonderful painting, I say wonderful, that painting is a very good picture, but it's very dramatic, of course, that picture of the temple burning. And that's in all the school books of Roman Britain. And that's, of course, when Boudicca arrives with her forces. And what fate, I think we already know the answer to this already, but what terrible fate befalls Camelodunum, befalls Colchester, when Boudicca arrives? Yeah, I mean, the sources tell us about 120,000 warriors were raised from the area, from the Iceni or Iceni heartlands, together with Trinovantes, interestingly. I mean, that's probably a vastly inflated number, but lots, I think it's fair to say, just descend on Colchester and burn it to the ground. And we see that so viscerally in the archaeological record, like nowhere else. Archaeologists often try and you know, patch a story that, that emerges in the history to the archaeological record. And it very seldom do you find it neatly working. You, know, you try and it makes for a good story, but you often don't. Here it is absolutely the case. You put a spade in the ground and you'll find you know, a charcoal layer from the burning of Colchester. And it's Vast. And, you know, again, in the museum, you can see those quite poignant in the way, for instance, a good iron from someone who probably was cooking, you know, just the night before the attack. And that's what kind of melted and stone and tiles and, and all sorts of material just kind of melted and charcoal and blackened by something that would have been pretty cataclysmic for the people here. And, of course, the Fennec treasure, which is hidden in the floor of a building in Colchester. Under the modern the reason this name is, of course, there's the department store, the Fennec's department store, and it was found there under one of their renovations. So, 60-61 AD, Colchester is sacked. Can we say this is a turning point in the history of Colchester, in the history of Britain, or not so much? Maybe, maybe. The Romans definitely had a great ambition for Colchester, I think it's fair to say it was the capital. And then suddenly it wasn't. And, you know, undoubtedly Boudicca played a part within that. And then it seems to shift more to London, of course. But I wonder if that was always going to happen, because you look at the Cone River here and you wonder, was that ever as strategically well-placed as London? And you think, well, naturally, I would suspect London would always kind of grow to be the major centre logistically. I suspect Colchester or Camelodunum was initially singled out, partly because, you know, it wasn't in a bad location by any stretch of imagination, but I think politically, because of Canobolin and different reasons, I think the Romans kind of gravitated to that. And later, as the political situation developed and also as they got a sense of the lay of the land, if you like, London would have become more established anyway. Although that's not to say they suddenly stopped investing in Colchester at all. One of the problems with the Boudicca revolt was there's no walls. <laughs> and that's a problem in the, in the defence of a town. So first thing they did after the Boudicca revolt was build proper walls. And you see them everywhere, of course, here. And, and they survive very well. The best preserved gatehouse survives here at the Balkan Gate, of course, uh, as an example of that. But also the theatre at Gosbeck, as I say, was, still, you know, was built second century. And other investments, I think the circus was built in the second century, come to think of it as well. So they're still investing in a big way in Colchester, and it rises. The population probably grew to potentially as much as 30,000 by the third century. And of course, then you get some of the problems in the third and fourth century. Absolutely, and there are a couple of artifacts I'd love to focus on in this period, like post-Boudicca Colchester. And one of them, first of all, an incredible artifact, the gladiator vase. Frank, what is this artifact? 
Oh, the Colchester vase. It's stunning, isn't it? And the quality of it is one of the things that really kind of stands out for me. It depicts elements of gladiatorial combat, actually, we don't immediately think about. So, for instance, you've got their bear baiting and another kind of animal fight, which is a big part of the entertainment, for want of a better word, in the whole of the empire, as well as perhaps what we're more familiar with, and thanks to Hollywood, is the gladiatorial combat, which it also depicts. Well, there's two reasons why it's so important. Firstly, of course, it's very beautiful. I mean, we're not talking kind of crude carvings, are we? We're talking well-moulded, beautiful depictions of gladiators. But it's also that they're named. I mean, that's the most interesting bit for me. And who were they? So the names were Memno and, and Valentina. And you might start thinking, well, who were they? Were they some of the best-known gladiators at this point in time? Again, Colchester, you know, they were talking mid-2nd century. So it's still a major town, would have been known throughout the province. Were these some of the leading names of the time? Because gladiators had this interesting relationship where they were both despised, but at the same time elevated. A very odd kind of situation. And to have their names is wonderful. And there's a secutor, which is the gladiators with a sword, helmet and shield, fighting a Vitarius, and they're the ones with the net and the shield. The Vitarius is the chap who's holding his finger up. Not in the way that sounds on this podcast, but actually in surrender. And that was a recognised symbol for that. And you, again, very visceral, isn't it? You really get a sense of, for want of a better word, entertainment. Yeah, it is incredible object. So the detail of it survives and the words of these actual figures. So it's not just a depiction, as you say, this was a representation of an actual gladiator who, as you say, may have been known. I know I'm kind of repeating here a bit, but it's a point that's worth to emphasise. Almost like the heroes of the Olympic Games in ancient Greece, like Milo of Croton and that lot. These were figures who may well have been known across Roman Britain as these renowned fighters. And yet they were slaves as well, of course. And interestingly, there's um, two bear baiters on it who were also named. And you wouldn't have thought they would have any sense of kind of significance either. And the vase is actually in a cremation burial itself as well, which is less well known, actually. People don't tend to refer to that, but it was a cremation burial. And, and again, that starts making you think, oh, I wonder who was buried with that. Someone who enjoyed the games, someone who, well, who knows? Interesting, that cremation link. I'm sure we'll be coming back to that soon with the Colchester team. But let's focus on one other object, and you did highlight it earlier, and this is the Gosbeck's Mercury, which I believe also dates this period. It can also shine a light on, I'm more wary about saying this now after last time, but can it shine more of a light on Roman religion in this part of Roman Britain at that time? Yes, I think so. But again, as I say, you know, Gosbeck's is a funny site. It's fascinating that such a temple complex would be built there of all places, certainly respecting some kind of place of gathering, which weren't well known in Iron Age Britain. So its location is very interesting. Mercury as well, we know from historical sources, from Roman sources, but also some tentative archaeological sources. Mercury seems to be something there was an affinity to in Iron Age religion, more so actually than Mars and Camulos in many sites. Mercury seems to be a deity that, that's really kind of elevated in both in Gaul and in Britain, actually. So its presence there is very interesting. And of course, it's beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely incredible quality. Describe the Godspec's Mercury quickly. I mean, what does it look like? It's, I mean, it's not huge, is it? I mean, it's what, uh, 30 centimetres tall, a little bit damaged. But actually, when you really look at how exquisite its face is, and the quality is just astonishing. And then, of course, the little wings, 
And again, it's where it's this context, as I say, in Gosbeck's, but it's found in a field, actually. I mean, the story of that is quite interesting. And it was only a, a passing chance that the curator happened to find. Through this wonderful kind of antiquarian kind of conversations, it was yeah, found in a field and somebody mentioned it in a pub-type experience, which is wonderful. I love those kind of stories. So it's found by, quite by chance in many ways. I mean, if we then go on from that into later Roman cultures to times, because it does seem that around that time, and forgive me if I'm mistaken, but... Christianity really starts to take hold at Roman Colchester. Yeah, when you're talking about the rise of religions or anything like that, it relies on serendipity, doesn't it? It's on what you're finding in the town. You're right, though, to bring in Colchester, I think, because there's just a couple of elements to it which have that serendipity. So you've got what appears to be a 5th or 6th century church on the end of the theatre I mentioned earlier in the town, which is St Helen's church or chapel it's only very very small but it's so old it's wonderful this fifth or sixth century and that's built out of literally the foundations of part of the theater using obviously what was the remnants of that in post-roman britain so there's that this wonderful kind of structure there and of course what we like to claim is the earliest church in britain just outside the police station here near buck road and that's fascinating it looks like a mithraeum and actually, you know, many people will say, well, well, I think it's probably a myth and that's just been called a church. But there's a few reasons to think it may well have been a myth originally, but then converted into a church. And its association with a very large Christian cemetery is part of that, I think. And certainly there's no reason why it shouldn't have been turned into a Christian chapel or church later on, early in the 4th century. I think that's a reasonable argument to make. But there is some doubt about that. But if it is, it probably is amongst, if not the earliest, Christian church in Britain, one-off. That's another awesome fact, along with the, possibly the first town in Britain. But when you think of Mithraeums, you normally think of underground or dark, gloomy spaces. So it's quite interesting that, and of course we have examples elsewhere in the empire where we see pagan sites being converted into churches. But it's quite interesting, if it is true, if it was a Mithraeum, this quite dark, mysterious place, that was the place which was transformed into a church. Well, I think you've got to also bear in mind of what Christianity looked like at that moment in time. You know, we all are very familiar now with what a modern church looks like, of course. And it's amazing, actually, how formulaic modern churches are. You do get some variation, but they are pretty rigorous. And that all comes down to almost a ritualisation of architecture, if you like, in many ways. And that in itself comes back to the Forum Basilica set there by the Romans back in the day. That's where it comes from, which is a secular building, okay, intertwined with the kind of cult of the emperor, if you like. But that's really where church foundations lie. But in the early 4th century, there was no prototype of what a church should look like necessarily. So they probably were using whatever was available to a certain extent, and pagan temples would have been falling out of use, of course. So they would have been almost available from that perspective. And, you know, we see this with post-Christian examples as well as pre-Christian examples. Places of religion, if you like, whatever the religion are, often carry through a kind of a sanctity, even for religions that are very different. They still kind of hold a place of importance because of a kind of ritualised memory almost. Brilliant. So it begs the question then, as we come to the end of Roman Britain, as it were, in the early 5th century, what happens to Roman Colchester? What happens at that time? I would say, I mean, there's people who'd be able to speak far better than I would on this, but I would say it follows very much the same pattern as most towns in Roman Britain at this period. You know, a lot of depopulation. We know people were still living perhaps on the outskirts and in different places within Colchester, but how much you would recognise any sense of kind of urban living within that, I think would be very minimal indeed. 
cemeteries continue in use, but not to the same scale. And there was actually a burial of a woman in a home, in effect. And it looks like they didn't even know that was there. She's been laid to rest on top of a mosaic. It looks like they didn't even know the mosaic was there. But yeah, that's you know, a little bit of interpretation within that. So who knows? There's some coin hoards around in the 5th century too, where the coins have been clipped. You know, that practice of snipping away the silver. And of course, you didn't get away with that in the Roman Empire and later periods as well. In most kind of periods of history, clipping that was a death sentence, in effect, if you got caught doing that, because, you know, it leads to inflation and all sorts of problems. So that carries on in the 5th century. So you do get coin hoards, you do get coinage kind of being distributed probably in different ways. And actually, there's a very interesting book called Unroman Britain. I don't know if you've come across Dr. it. Dr. Miles Russell, yeah, good old Miles. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think within that, you get a good sense of, you know, okay, London, but something very similar here, whereas are people actually living in these buildings? Are they people kind of passing through in what was a very kind of chaotic time? And I suspect the latter. Frank? This has been a brilliant chat. Last of all, you and your team at the Colchester Museum. We've been gearing up for the summer. You're now open and you have this, as we've been chatting throughout this podcast, you've got this huge array of incredible ancient objects in the museum from the Colchester area. Do you know, it's such a privilege working here. For me as an RNA specialist, of course, it's my mecca. This place. And the collections here are so extraordinary from you know, late Iron Age, early Roman. And it's amazing. But of course, you know, we haven't even touched upon the later stories of you know, the castle itself, the largest Norman keep in Europe, of course. It's just incredible place to work. And you step out from the castle and you know, you've got all that history around you. It's a fabulous place, Colchester. Bit of a hidden gem, I'd say. The hidden gem, but incredible. You need to remember, this is the Ancients podcast, right? That medieval stuff's way too modern for us. You have to go on the gold medieval podcast or the like. Frank, this has been a great chat. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.